0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 10, and I'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 23, and this is such an important passage of Scripture, I really want to just kind of give an introduction to Acts chapter 10 this morning to kind of help set the biblical and theological stage upon which to understand just how incredible this event is in the salvation of the first Gentile by the name of Cornelius. So let me begin reading in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and since I'm reading the inspired word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 1. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed he said what is it Lord and he said to him your prayers and alms have have ascended as a memorial before God now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is also called Peter he is staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and he was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. In calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, what we have seen so far is that the Lord directed Peter to go to Lydda where he healed the paralytic man. And then he went to uh, Joppa where he raised Dorcas from the dead. We saw that in our previous study. And now he's going to travel eventually to Caesarea, which is about 35 miles to the north, where Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, lives. And all of this is is basically under the guidance and direction of the Lord. So we saw in the healing of the paralyzed man raising Dorcas from the dead, we saw the power of Christ... We saw those also as a glimpse of the glory of the resurrection body that still awaits us in the future. But now we enter into new ground. And now we come to one of the most really important events in the book of Acts next to the event of Pentecost. And this is the salvation of the first Gentile who will not only come to faith in Jesus Christ as a Gentile, He will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was promised to Israel. He'll also speak in tongues, which they did at Pentecost. He'll receive Christian baptism, all while remaining uncircumcised and a Gentile. Now this was phenomenal. Because up to this point in time, according to the Jewish understanding, the only way for a Gentile to be saved is they must first become a Jew. So they had to become a proselyte and then they needed to undergo physical circumcision and basically become a Jew and then they would be fully welcomed into the Jewish community. Now, uh, we saw that Cornelius is a He's very friendly to Judaism. He's come to know the God of 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 the Old Testament to some, but he has not submitted to circumcision. So even though he was he done he did a lot of great things for the people there. He was known for his prayer and his alms giving. He was not yet saved according to the Jewish mindset. What Acts is going to teach us is that God is now opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles. And they can become members of the messianic community of believers. They can become children of Abraham without becoming Jews, without physical circumcision. And this was something that the Jews would not have easily embraced. So this is a covenantal leap that was foreign to Jewish thinking. Now, I remember back in uh, the Gospels when Jesus said to Simon Peter that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there's a lot, no doubt, involved in unpacking the significance of that. But part of what I think that that uh, blessing involved was that Peter was going to be uh, kind of the first and foremost person in spreading the gospel to other people groups outside of the Jews. So we find that later on he's going to, um, well, at least... Even though Philip Philip goes preaches to the Samaritans, it's Peter that has to be there before they actually get the Holy Spirit. And Peter is going to be the one who's going to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles, Cornelius primarily, the Roman centurion, so that the keys of the kingdom of heaven involves, I think, the the instrumental role of Peter and bringing the Gospel and the blessings of the Gospel to those who are outside of the Jewish faith. Now again, up to this point in time, I think the Jews basically believed that um, when, uh, for example, when even when Jesus gave them the great commission in Acts chapter one verse eight that they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth, they thought, okay, well, Jesus is telling us we need to go to the Jews who are scattered throughout all these other nations. That's kind of how they understood that. In other words, for them, salvation meant you've got to become a Jew. Salvation is within Israel and only within Israel, so we're going to go out to all these nations and preach to the Jews and, and uh, maybe a few Gentiles here and there. But they understood that basically God had made His covenant with Israel and God had chosen them. They were special. In order to be saved, you basically have to become a Jew. Well, this event in Acts 10 where a Gentile who does not fully convert to Judaism who does not submit to physical circumcision. Nevertheless, he is going to be saved. He becomes the poster child, if you will, for the new covenant blessing of salvation. That basically what God is doing is shining the light on Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So that the salvation of Cornelius, this Gentile centurion, is at the epicenter of a theological and covenantal earthquake that will take the Old Covenant and shake it to its core. And that's why not only will all of chapter 10 and and a good part of chapter 11 is all devoted to the conversion of Cornelius. Uh, This event will be so important that Cornelius' vision that we read about, first part of chapter 10, will be repeated and referred to no less than four times. And Peter's vision will be repeated twice. And this issue, again, is so explosive in the Jewish mindset that later on in Acts 15, when you had the Jerusalem Council, this big theological debate, this first big issue that faced the church, it was all over whether Gentiles could be saved without being circumcised. See, it's a huge issue. So what we find is a revolutionary advance in God's program in carrying out the new covenant, which up to this point was still largely Jewish. And some have said that the conversion here in, in, of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 is maybe five or six years after Pentecost. And the, and the Christian church was still dominantly Jewish. And now at this point, it's going to start breaking through the boundaries and spreading out. Among the Gentiles. So again there's a major roadblock. For this to take place. Before God can start grafting in these Gentile believers. Into the covenant root of Israel. And that is the Jewish bias. And attitude towards Gentiles. So let's kind of look at that for a moment or two. We find the traditional Jewish. Attitude towards a Gentile was not good. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being total hatred, uh, their attitude towards the Samaritans was about a 9. Their attitude towards Gentiles was about 237, I think. They, they looked upon Gentiles as being Dogs. They looked upon them as those unclean, wild scavengers of the streets, those walking flea bags, those mongrel mutts that wandered the streets eating garbage that were a nuisance and even dangerous at times. They frequent, frequently referred to Gentiles as dogs, as a, as a great put-down. Uh, some of the rabbis taught that Gentiles were, were good for nothing except to fuel the fires of hell. They were all pagan idolaters. So that basically from the Jewish point of view, there's only two kinds of people in the world. You have Jews who worship the true God and then you have idolaters. Everybody else is an idolater. And one rabbi in the second century said the best of the Gentiles ought to just be killed. Just go kill them. That's the best you can hope for. So the Jewish attitude towards Gentiles would be similar to, for, for example, today, let, let's say there's a, a radical liberal socialist rally. And uh, the guest speaker is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> and you show up wearing a MAGA hat. That's about the attitude that they had towards the Gentiles uh, back then. Uh, why, why did the Jews develop such a, an attitude towards the Gentiles? Well, of course, God had told them not to intermarry with them because they were unclean as a people. Um, they were idolaters. Certainly, that, that's clear. God had chosen Israel as a nation and set them apart as His, as His special possession. God gave Israel all these dietary laws and clothing laws and all these other regulations that made them different than all the Gentile pagans around whom they lived. And of course, all the dietary laws were really not given so much for health reasons or hygiene reasons, but more so for holiness reasons, just to set them apart as different, because later they will all be annulled by Christ. They were designed to make them distinct, to separate them, to put up a barrier between them and the Gentiles. So you can certainly understand that, that biblically they were certainly uh, warned about getting involved with the nations and the Gentiles because, uh, because of the corruption and the negative influence that they could have upon the Jews. We see all this went to their head over time. And I think the Jews began to think that God had chosen them and elected them as a nation because they were special and superior and better. And they forgot that God had chosen them by grace, not because they were in any way superior to anybody else. And forgetting this, they gradually became full of racial pride and hatred towards those despised Gentiles, those goyim, those dogs who were unwashed and unholy sinners. And this attitude developed so much that uh, they wouldn't even have any social contact with the Gentile because that would contaminate them. For example, no Orthodox Jew would ever enter a Gentile home, let alone eat a meal prepared by Gentile hands. Nor would they invite a Gentile into their home. So they became racial and religious bigots. And we see this even in Peter's words later on in Acts 10 when he finally shows up to Cornelius' house and begins to interact with him before he preaches the gospel to him. This is what Peter says. He said to them, Cornelius and his family, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So the Jewish bias is reflected here, even in Peter. He says, look, you Gentiles know that according to our laws, it's unlawful for me as a Jew to even associate with you as a Gentile. Or to even visit. I shouldn't even be here in your house. So he, he, he clearly acknowledges this great divide, this great dividing wall, this great barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And of course, uh, they had this very hostile attitude in general towards Gentiles. Now just uh, carrying this a, a step further, however, what was Jesus' attitude towards sinners and Gentiles? Well, we know that, that the Lord sent His disciples to go out to, to the, the sheep of Israel first and only to the sheep of Israel. So that covenantally was, was necessary. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. So basically His ministry was by and large uh, mostly with, with Jews. But look at Jesus' attitude towards sinners in general. Uh, we see, for example, in Luke chapter 7, that uh, the the people who were critics of Jesus said that, <clears throat> Behold, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why, why did they uh, level that accusation against the Lord? Well, because he spent time with tax collectors and sinners. People that most Jews would disdain and really looked down on. Yet, Jesus ministered to them. He even called Matthew, one of, a tax collector, to be one of His chosen twelve disciples. See, His attitude was different than the typical Jewish attitude towards these people. And when, then we have the woman caught in adultery and all the Pharisees wanted to do is just to condemn her because of her sin. How did Jesus treat her? Well, with great tenderness and mercy. And once He confronted the hypocrisy among the Pharisees, He said, woman, where are they? Because they have all began to leave, you remember? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. That Jesus had a heart to minister to prostitutes and adulterers. For we today kind of, you know, we have this attitude to look at those kind of people and we just... We just have kind of a hostile attitude. They're sinners. They're unclean people, don't we? Jesus ministered to them. How about a leper? No one would get close to a leper. No one would touch a leper. But Jesus did. See, Christ's attitude towards these kinds of people diseased and unclean, not only Spiritually, morally, but physically unclean. And you remember in Matthew 8, Jesus stretched out His hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. See, Jesus' heart and attitude towards sinners, people despised by others, was to show mercy and compassion to him. How about the Samaritans? (laughs) You know, the Jews despise the Samaritans. But in John 4, how did Jesus deal with that woman? Therefore the Samaritan woman said to Him, How is it that you being a Jew ask Me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. No dealings with them. And yet Jesus patiently engaged her in conversation about water and living water and gradually brought her to understanding that He was the Messiah when the Jews would not have had anything to do with Samaritans, much less a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And what you see is the heart of Christ to go to those who are despised and looked down upon by all the others and yet He had a tender heart towards them for their salvation well, how about Gentiles? Did Jesus ever interact with Gentiles? Well, on occasion he did. Remember in Mark 7, when Jesus is up in Tyre uh, area, there's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician race, who kept coming to Jesus, begging, imploring him that he would cast out a demon from her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be satisfied first for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Kind of a put down if you think about it. Dogs? She's a dog, right? I mean, he he even referred to her as as a as a dog using this this response. And yet in great humbleness she responded, "Yes, Lord," but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And the Lord said, this is recorded in Matthew 15, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Even Jesus ministered and gave blessings to this Gentile woman who came to believe in Him. Who came to trust in Him. You see, Jesus again had a reputation that caused His disciples to scratch their heads. I don't understand. Why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? And here you're, you're ministering to a Gentile woman? That, that, was, that was not on their, their, uh, on their radar in terms of how you would treat these kinds of people. No, you despise them. You hate them. You look down upon them because they're unclean. And yet Jesus had quite a, a loving, gentle spirit towards meeting and ministering to those kinds of people. There's another one in uh, Matthew chapter 8. If you remember, this is another Gentile centurion, you remember? Back in Matthew chapter 8, who implored Jesus to heal his paralyzed servant. And uh, Jesus said he would go with him. And the the centurion, another Gentile centurion in Matthew 8, said, look, I'm not even worthy for you to come under the roof of my house. Just speak the word. My servant will be healed. And Jesus said, Now when Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, and now these are Jews, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See how Jesus dealt with this Gentile in Matthew 8. He commended him for his faith. He said, I can't even find any Jew that has the kind of faith that you have. And He granted him this blessing. Again, the tender kindness, the mercy that He showed to a man whom the Jews would have just soon spit on as get close to. So, going backwards, let's, let's talk for a moment. Again, the Jews in the first century had this very biased, prejudiced, racist attitude towards Gentiles. Let's step back into the Old Testament for a few moments and see what the attitude uh, that we have towards the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And basically, there's no uh, better place... Uh, than to uh, to really look at uh, what Paul says about the Gentiles, which kind of sums up how the Old Testament viewed the Gentiles. Now again, understand that what, what we saw in Jesus is Jesus is tearing down these old stereotypes of prejudice and racial biases, which the Old Covenant helped to, to form to a certain degree. But the New Covenant that Jesus is bringing in, is changing all of that. It begins with the house of Israel, but it is not restricted to the house of Israel. This is a thing that blows all the Jewish minds. It began with the house of Israel, but when the mystery of Christ kicks in, the new covenant will not be restricted to Israel, but will be a multinational covenant. It's not just for Jews only, but for believing Jews and believing Gentiles so that the wild olive branches will be grafted into the covenant tree by faith with the believing remnant of Israel. That's Romans 11. But When we look in the Old Testament, we began to see that really the Gentiles, uh, they're not in a very good standing with God, obviously. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He's writing to the church there. Most of them were Gentiles. There were Gentiles and Jews within the church. But he says, Remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. They didn't have a Messiah. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were outside the covenant that God made with Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty good summation of the spiritual condition of Gentiles in the Old Testament. In Ephesians 4, Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, because they were idolaters. They didn't know God. They were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. their are told depravity because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's the Gentile. That's their spiritual condition. They're outside the covenant. They don't know God. They're without hope because they're outside the covenant. So they're doomed to hell. So you can certainly understand that the Jews would look at Gentiles and see that these are hopeless idolaters deserving of the wrath of God. But instead of showing them mercy and compassion, they were content with a hostile attitude of just condemning them and separating themselves from them. And that was their problem. Now remember, the Old Testament, in light of all this truth about what the Gentiles were uh, given in the Old Testament... There is a series of breadcrumbs that the Spirit of God drops throughout the Old Testament that ultimately will lead to the mystery of Jesus Christ, which is Gentiles becoming fellow heirs with believing Jews in the covenant. There are breadcrumbs, and the Jews did not see it. They were blinded to it, but I want to quickly walk through some of these breadcrumbs to let you know that God's intent was not that the Jews have this hateful attitude towards Gentiles, but that they ought to reach out to them with the message of salvation. Because God's ultimate purpose was to bless the Gentiles too. And yet, they preferred to be blind to that And just to elevate themselves with this religious pride and just look down on the Gentiles. That's why they had such a difficult time accepting Cornelius, a Gentile, coming in inheriting all their blessings. The Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, the gift of salvation, without becoming a Jew. They had a difficult time understanding that. Let's just look at some of these breadcrumbs that lead us into the mystery of Christ as it's fully developed within the New Testament. Remember the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12.3. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right at the outset, God told Abraham that, you know, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. That's going to include Gentiles. That time, they don't fully understand it. Genesis 17.4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. So that Abraham was not going to just be the father of one nation, the Jewish nation. He would actually become a father of a multitude of nations, which are going to include Gentiles. And then in Genesis 22, 18, God tells Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in your seed, Paul interprets from that verse, in Galatians 3.16, that the seed of Abraham is Christ. And that's going to be the key. That's the mystery of Christ. That any Gentile that now believes in Christ is positionally, spiritually placed into Christ who is the seed of the Abrahamic covenant. And if you're in Christ, then you're an heir of the Abrahamic covenant, just like believing Jews are. And Paul will develop that more in Galatians chapter 3. But this is what God revealed. This is one of those early breadcrumbs that God will eventually include the Gentiles into these covenant blessings which the Jews of the first century did not really understand. How about in Psalm 2? This is the Father speaking of the Son. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is a Messianic Psalm, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you ask of Me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. What does that mean? He's going to inherit the nations. He's going to possess the earth to the very ends of the earth. What does that mean? Well, I think the mystery of Christ will ultimately answer that. How about Isaiah? Now I will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. And many peoples, that is not just Israel, the Jews, but many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. How will that be fulfilled? Well, certainly God intends to bring blessings upon the Gentiles. Now, however, that's fulfilled, that seems to be clear in this passage. Look at uh, Isaiah 19, verse 25. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Now look at this. Blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So now God is blessing Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, and they all become his people, they all become part of his inheritance. So that ultimately this was clearly indicated, this is a breadcrumb left throughout the Old Testament, that the Gentiles will one day be included in the covenant blessings. In Isaiah 49:6, that we read earlier, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. Now, this is a messianic promise. Ultimately, Christ is referred to here as my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now this is fully understood to be fulfilled in in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. But this was also to be the vision of the Jews. They were to be the light of the nations. They were to bring the light of the truth to the nations, which they miserably failed because of their biased, prejudiced attitude against them. But this is certainly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And notice, the salvation will reach to the ends of the earth among all these Gentiles. That's another pretty significant breadcrumb. How about Ezekiel? This is the dividing up the land in the future. You shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens. These will be Gentiles who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an in inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Now these are aliens. They're, they're not converted into Judaism. They're not Jews yet. They are still Gentiles. They're aliens. They haven't submitted to circumcision. And yet there's a prophecy that they will be like native born sons of Israel. And they will have an inheritance among the Jews in the land. See, this is an incredible breadcrumb of what God was ultimately going to do in blessing uh, the Gentiles. How about this? This is uh, from the prophet Hosea, but I'm going to actually quote how Paul interprets this prophecy in Romans chapter 9. He refers to these elect and chosen vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He also called not from among Jews only, but also among Gentiles, as He also says in Hosea. So the fact that Gentiles are going to be included in these covenant blessings, Paul says, Hosea taught this. And then he quotes from Hosea. I will call those who are not My people, My people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So Hosea prophesied that God would take all of these unclean, unholy Gentiles who are not my people and make them his people. It's a pretty clear breadcrumb. You look at Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and become My people. Gentiles now grafted in. Gentiles now entering into, ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in the New Covenant, but they join with believing Jews and they become My people. Many nations, Gentiles, without coming through the gate of Judaism. No, as Gentiles uncircumcised. They become My people. Zechariah 9.6 The Mongol race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth and they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Ashdod, Ekron, what cities were those historically? Philistine cities. Some of the greatest enemies of Israel were the Philistines. And yet Zechariah prophesies, that one day they will come and be a remnant of our God like a clan in Judah. They'll be like a fellow Jew while they remain as Gentiles. How about Amos 9? And that day I'll raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches and I'll also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom was again one of the great enemies of Israel. The Edomites—they were horrible enemies—and all the nations who are called by my name. In other words, when the fallen booth of David is rebuilt up, this can be fulfilled. However, you interpret that into the future, I think the new covenant is certainly doing that to to a degree. But then the remnant of Israel and all the nations who are called my name will be possessed within the fallen booth of David. And of course, in one of the greatest ones, which Pentecost was built all around, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as, as the, the, uh, Israel's covenant blessing to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, Joel 2.28, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 says, and I will, it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on who? All mankind. Not just the Jews. All mankind. Jews and Gentiles. And this is what's going to happen with Cornelius. Because Cornelius, as an uncircumcised Gentile, is going to receive Israel's promised gift of the Holy Spirit. He will speak in tongues also. He'll go through Christian baptism without ever being circumcised, without ever becoming a Jew. He immediately is grafted into the covenant tree of Israel, receiving Israel's blessings without ever becoming a Jew. So again, this is, this is a profound uh, revelation And these are the breadcrumbs that we find throughout the Old Testament that will ultimately be fulfilled as Paul explains it more clearly in the mystery of Christ in the New Testament. I like what Derek Thomas said in his commentary on Acts. He says, The significance of the ethnic Jews within the covenant purposes of God had now reached its fulfillment. From now on, there would be no more Jew and Gentile, circumcision and uncircumcision. The dividing wall of hostility separating Jews and Gentiles had been broken down. This is talking about what Christ did. Something of the end of the ages has dawned and a new order of existence had arrived. So that basically what becomes so new in the new covenant is that membership in God's covenant people is no longer based on race, but it is based on grace. Grace. That's what's so new about the new covenant. You become a covenant member apart from racial issues. It's now not based on race, but on grace. So that now believing Gentiles can enter in as well. And that grace is extended to all kinds of men. Jews and Gentiles. So that Paul will say later in Ephesians chapter 3, Now you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. In other words, I'm giving you greater light. And when he says it has not been revealed as it has now been revealed, he's not saying it was totally hidden in the Old Testament. No, we saw a lot of breadcrumbs. But in the New Testament, it has a much greater, fuller revelation of God's purposes for the Gentiles. So, this mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It was not made known some, but not as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So what is the mystery of Christ? Look at verse 6. To be specific, that Gentiles... Our fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, all of this is really just to set up the difficulty that Peter had and the early church, the early Jewish church had in the conversion of Cornelius. Because from their own background, through misunderstanding the Scriptures, being blind to all these breadcrumbs of God's ultimate, ultimate plan to bless the Gentiles, they didn't see that and they developed this self-righteous indignation towards Gentiles. All of these breadcrumbs throughout the Old Testament should have softened the Jewish attitude towards the Gentiles, because they knew that God would ultimately save them and bring believers in as His, as His people. But instead, their attitude petrified. They developed a holier-than-thou attitude towards the Gentiles. They despised them as unclean human beings, as dogs. And it quenched any missionary activity Because they didn't understand that they were called actually to be the light to the nations. And rather they were content in thinking that we Jews are in the light. Those Gentiles are in the darkness. And that's fine with us. We'll just leave things as they be. And that was kind of their general attitude. That was not the attitude of Christ. Certainly not the attitude of the new covenant. But there is this tremendous racial roadblock, this, this big issue that the Jews have to get through in order to welcome all these Gentile believers into the church. And it was not an easy thing for them. So that's kind of the background of what we're going to see as we look further later on into Acts 10 and the conversion of Cornelius and why this is such a profound event in the outworking of the New Covenant. The application I want to close with is that how oftentimes are we not guilty of the same attitude towards other people? It's kind of easy, I think, for all of us to have a a sense of religious pride or arrogance based on our morality so we look down on other sinners and instead of having a heart of compassion we just kind of judge them and get away from me and I don't want to have anything to do with them because they're sinners maybe they're in the homosexual lifestyle or maybe they're transvestites and you they just we look at them and we just say they're unclean they're unwashed they're dogs And, and and our attitude is just to push them away because because we're better actually we're a little holier. I mean, we have right doctrines, and I don't live that, that way. And so we, we look down upon them. We have these, these biased, prejudices, prejudiced attitudes ourselves, don't we, at times? I know I do. We look again at illegal aliens, and you know, they have no right to be in our, our country. Uh, Muslim women wearing their hijabs in the grocery store and you look at them and you just want to walk down another aisle. Just get away from them. What are those people doing here? And this prejudice is rooted in a sense of pride where we compare ourselves with others and think that in some way we're superior and we're better. Now I'm all for borders and laws. I think It's a travesty when our nation legalized gay marriage. Uh, The homosexual lifestyle is a perversion of human nature. It's a violation of God's creation norms of gender, of marriage, and of family. And I'm all for bringing back uh, morality into our laws. I, I believe in that strongly. But these people, every single one of them, whether they're an illegal alien or whether they're caught up in the homosexual lifestyle or they're a man wearing a woman's clothes or whatever it may be, they are still sinners who need the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And who's going to take it to them if it's not you and me? They are still sinners who have broken God's laws they're living a lifestyle which is certainly contrary to Scripture. And one day they'll stand before God and have to give an account for every sin that they've committed. They need the Gospel. But if my attitude towards them is like the Jewish attitude towards the Gentiles, well, well they're unclean, they're unholy. I don't even want to get close to those people. And I must admit, that's my attitude sometimes but instead of having an attitude like Christ did towards the sinners and the unclean Samaritans and Gentiles who, who have a heart to want to go to them, and instead of having this arrogant, proud, sophisticated, this superior attitude of looking down upon them and having hostile anger towards them, why shouldn't I love them with the Gospel in mind and want to reach out to them and minister to them? Because the bottom line is, we are no better than they. And that vision that Peter will experience three times with that great curtain coming down out of heaven, with the clean and the unclean animals in there, we are those unclean animals. We are not clean, we are Gentiles. I would imagine all of us in this room are probably from a Gentile stock. We are not the clean, the holy animals. We are unclean, unholy animals. That describes us. That's who we are. And to think that for some reason I can't get down and minister to another unclean animal because I'm no better than they are. And really in God's eyes, there's no worse than I am by nature is an arrogance and a pride that is unbecoming a follower of Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce tells the story of um, Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside was one of the great preachers of yesteryear and uh, wrote a lot of commentaries. Well, Harry Ironside's father was named John. He was on his deathbed and he kept muttering things that the family couldn't really understand what he was saying and they finally got close enough to him and what he was muttering was the vision that Peter had in Acts chapter 10 and he was saying in words that they finally could decipher a great sheet and wild beasts and 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 a great sheet and and wild beasts and 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 he couldn't remember how it It ended. And finally, one of his friends bent over to him and said, John, it says creeping things. And Mr. Ironside John said then with a clear voice, Oh yes, that is how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in by the grace of God. And that is really the attitude that we need to have. That when we think of all these unwashed sinners of every stripe and color out there, every political divide and issue and commitment, they're all sinners. They're all unclean animals. And that's exactly what I am. I am one of those creeping things. Unclean. Rejected that has been saved by the grace of God. Because in the new covenant, salvation is no longer based on race, but on grace. And may God help to remove our prejudice and our favoritism and our arrogant, superior attitudes and looking down on others as we remember who we are by nature. We're an unclean, creeping thing saved by the sheer grace of God alone. And may that truth open our hearts to our fellow men caught up in all kinds of sin. But may we go to them as one sinner to another offering them the water of life that they so desperately need to hear. So a lot to learn from this whole incident of what the Jews were having to work through, even the Jewish Christians, in accepting these unclean, unwashed Gentiles into their midst. But let us sift our own hearts from similar prejudice and favoritism that we might love others as we saw Jesus did in His life and ministry. So let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You for... The Word of God, and we thank You for the incredible, gracious plan of the new covenant that just tears down the dividing wall, separating Jews and Gentiles. That, Lord, Your salvation is free, and it's merciful, and it's full of grace. And it's not to just one kind of people, but to all kinds of people, whoever will repent, And believe in Jesus Christ alone who died on the cross and bore the sins of sinners and endured the very judgment and wrath of God that they deserve. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Father, forgive us for the pride that we often have. The arrogant attitude that elevates ourselves as being superior to others so that we don't even have a thought to invite them to the Gospel table. Forgive us of our own hard attitude of prejudice and racism. And Lord, give us a love for our fellow man, for they, like us, are all unclean animals needing to hear that Christ saves sinners. And so, Lord, use us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.